This Father's Day, the Home Depot has the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's the groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. This Father's Day, power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools from the Home Depot. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. Find the perfect Father's Day gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com. Diamonds Direct has done it again. This month only, get ready for an offer you can't resist. Buy a natural diamond engagement ring of one carat plus and receive a free natural one carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. That's right, a stunning diamond tennis bracelet at no extra cost. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. So hurry into Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet will not last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Guess what, Will? What's that, Mango? So I just want to warn you, this might be the most controversial thing I ever say on this show. Uh-oh. Here it is. I don't think Ayn Rand's that funny. Wait, that's your controversial statement? <laughs> I, I don't think there's anyone out there debating that. Well, you'd think that, but Ayn Rand was such a polarizing figure, and the people who love her, they love her. I mean, she basically had groupies who treated everything she did like gospel. I was reading this oral history of her life, and her secretary said that when Rand bought a new dining table, all her disciples noticed. And the next day, a bunch of them went out and bought the same table for their homes because <laughs> they were convinced it was the only real dining table. Wow. Well, she definitely had some devoted followers. But that's not what makes learning about her so hard. Either people hated her or they worshipped her. So you get quotes about how completely humorless she was. Or on the other hand, you get quotes about how riotously funny she could be. But the examples of her being funny, well, they just sound like people have cute, funny confusion. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> like, the examples of her being funny are like someone saw her do a little dance when she was happy. And that's not funny, that's cute. <laughs> I mean, I really hunted. And this is the only joke of hers I could find. Are you ready for it? Yeah, I think so. Because it is hilarious. So uh, what's a four-letter word ending in I-T that embodies Eleanor Roosevelt and is found at the bottom of a birdcage? First of all, I kind of love that even her jokes are overwritten, but <laughs> well, anyway, what's the yeah. answer? And whenever she started telling this joke, she started giggling and could barely get through it. But the answer is grit. Like, okay. <laughs> which I guess to Ayn Rand was objectively funny. Like, the only really funny thing about that joke is that she hated Eleanor Roosevelt, but the punchline kind of praises her. Yeah, I don't see Ayn Rand getting a Netflix comedy special anytime soon, but <laughs> she was charismatic and smart, and she had a really fascinating life. But here's my question. Why does she seem to be the most talked-about novelist of our times, even though she wrote her novels more than 50 years ago? And why is it that Washington can't get enough of her? I think it's time we find out. Hey there, podcast listeners. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Mangesh Hatikader. Hey there, Mango. Hey. 
and this is Part-Time Genius. Now, today we're asking the question, how did Ayn Rand become such a political rock star? Which is going to be fun. I know, and in addition to all things Rand, we'll be joined by someone who may rival Rand in his ability to capture the hearts and minds of teenagers everywhere, the mega best-selling author of The Fault in Our Stars, and our good friend, John Green. Now, do we have a really bad quiz for him to play today, Mango? The worst. Good, good. <laughs> now, who's playing our part-time genius quiz today? Well, in sticking with the Ayn Rand theme, we've got a couple architects competing for the big prize. And if you don't know why architects are appropriate for a show on Rand, well, you'll understand soon. That's true. All right, well, let's get to it. So biographer Jennifer Burns described Rand as the ultimate gateway drug to life on the right. <laughs> David Nolan, one of the founders of the Libertarian Party, commented that without Ayn Rand, the Libertarian movement would not exist. And one 20th century philosopher said that in the entire history of philosophy, there were really only three philosophers worth paying close attention to. <laughs> they were the three A's, Mango. It was Aristotle, Aquinas, and Ayn Rand. In fact, that philosopher called Rand the most creative thinker alive. So tell me who said this. Well, it was Ayn Rand, but she might have been a little bit biased, but still, I mean, that's a pretty big endorsement. Yeah, she didn't just give out endorsements to anyone. She earned that endorsement. Mm -hmm. So in honor of that, we should recommend the only things worth listening to today, and that's the three Ps. Oh, the three Ps. Yeah, Prince, Paula Abdul, and Part-Time Genius. Wow, that's quite a playlist, Mango. <laughs> Actually, do you know what Ayn Rand's quote reminds me of? What's that? So there's this great Aziz Ansari bit where he talks about walking into Kanye West's house and Kanye's in his living room just nodding his head to his own music. <laughs> and when he sees Aziz, he just points at the speaker and says, these beats are dope. Nice. Like, of all the music out there, Kanye only really needs Kanye. He's yeah, that genius. That's true. And I feel like Ayn Rand had a similar opinion of herself. In this book, A Hundred Voices, an oral history of Ayn Rand, her friends say she'd often read and reread her own books. Like, she'd pick up one of her books to find a quote, and then she wouldn't be able to pull herself away because she found out her own writing was that captivating. <laughs> she'd just have to keep reading the novel, and Atlas Shrugged is long. Yes, it is. It'd take the average person 36 hours to read it. Yeah, but I think Ayn Rand would be quick to remind you that she was no average person. <laughs> That's definitely true. <laughs> and to be clear, just like Kanye, she wasn't the only one captivated by her own work. It's kind of surprising that whenever there's a big list of the most influential books in history where readers, not critics, are weighing in, she tops the list. In the 90s, the Library of Congress and the Book of the Month Club teamed up to ask readers what book had influenced them the most. Not surprisingly, number one on the list was the Bible, mm -hmm. you know, because it's hard to vote against God's writing. But in second place, Atlas Shrugged. Yeah, but reader polls are notoriously the worst. I mean, when I was in high school, Delaware Today had a reader poll of the best Mexican restaurants in the state, and Taco Bell came in, in second place. I'm, I don't know what your point is. Taco Bell is delicious. But, <laughs> but that book isn't the only one Ayn fans are passionate about. When the Modern Library did a survey asking readers to vote on the 20th century's best works of fiction, Atlas Shrugged came in first again. The Fountainhead was right behind it in second. Anthem was seventh. And We the Living was in eighth. Those are all Rand works. This is crazy. But most scholars don't agree, right? I mean, none of those four Ayn Rand books showed up on the Modern Library survey of critics. Not a single one. You're right. I mean, there's a clear divide between the world of critics and Ayn Rand's massive fan base, which might be why she hated critics so much. Now, scholars and critics in general never took her that seriously. 
Right, but after seeing how many people she'd influenced and how passionate her fans are, I realized that ignoring her is clearly a mistake. Yeah. Like, millions of people intensely identify with their stories, and I'd always just assumed it was purely, like, bankers and politicians and the band Rush that was into <laughs> her. But she also influenced, like, Billie Jean King and Eva Mendes, people wow. you might not expect. I mean— Rand's goal from the start was to create these page-turning action-adventure novels layered with mystery and passion that spread her philosophy. And it's kind of amazing that she actually did that. Like, for whatever you think about her, she got a whole world of people to rethink their values and also maybe believe in themselves. Sure. I mean, her whole notion was to sell people on objectivism, which is built on the idea that man is a heroic being. And Rand identified man's own happiness as the moral purpose of his life with productive achievement as his noblest activity and reason as his only absolute. Which sounds lovely on the surface, right? Yeah, like who can't get behind working hard and achieving and being happy and living rationally? That's what she (laughs) truly believed. But she also thought she was only writing to reach a few extraordinary people in every generation. And when you play Rand's philosophy out, she's advocating that selfish behavior is the most moral behavior and that altruism is inherently evil. It's a little like the anti-Mr. Rogers, right? (laughs) It's not everyone special, but more only a few of you are special. And also, instead of sharing, why don't you hoard your toys? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Actually, there's this great quote from Christopher Hitchens that I scribbled down. He said, I've always found it quaint and rather touching that there's a movement in the U.S. that thinks Americans are not yet selfish enough. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. But back to Rand. So she rejected altruism. She was completely against any government overreach, whether that meant curbing your rights or redistributing wealth into social services. So you can also see why Tea Party members and conservatives started regularly quoting her work after the financial meltdown. And to be clear, Rand did not like to be described as a conservative or a libertarian. She was a strident atheist who preferred to be called a radical for capitalism. Which is why she wore all those radical jewelry pieces shaped like giant dollar signs, right? Right. I think that's the the case. (laughs) I just love how big and how gold they were. (laughs) I think those were from the uh, Scrooge McDuck collection. So, (laughs) But it's clear that Ayn Rand loved capitalism and extraordinary people. So who are some of the geniuses she was talking about? Well, in vague terms, she admired great artists and captains of industry, people who produced versus the moochers and the takers. So according to her friend Susan Ludell, For Ayn, Aristotle and Victor Hugo were basically the tops. Hmm. Then she also loved Greta Garbo and Muhammad Ali, Michelangelo, and the chess player Bobby Fischer. I mean, those are all talented people. But her favorite contemporary hero, and this comes from multiple sources, Morris the Cat. Wait, wait. (laughs) So this is the finicky cat from those Nine Lives cat food ads? (laughs) Yeah, apparently she couldn't get enough of those commercials. And not just because it featured a big, fluffy tabby, but because she loved Morris's distinct form of aggressive personality. Right, right, of course. (laughs) She loved that he didn't stand for nonsense and that he had strong opinions. And she liked his face. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, some might say that's reading a lot into a TV cat, but she loved him so much that she went out and bought the novelty biographies about him. Right, of course Ayn Rand is a cat person. I mean, she's not going to like something as needy as a dog. Yeah, and she did have a number of cats. But you know what's funny is that as cold as Ayn's philosophy can sound, there are a lot of accounts of her being downright nice. Like, I mean, she's very much lived by her principles. She didn't like to be contradicted. She didn't give to charity. She was radically direct with people. But in the accounts I read, I don't think she was intentionally mean very often. Well, that may be, but it's definitely fun to read how famous people react to her work. In fact, maybe we should dedicate an episode to this alone. (laughs) All right, maybe not, but... People were not always very kind. So to take Flannery O'Connor, for example, she wrote in a letter to a friend that 
The fiction of Ayn Rand is as low as you can get regarding fiction. I hope you picked it up off the floor of the subway and threw it in the nearest garbage pail. <laughs> ouch, Flannery. I, actually, I kind of like saying ouch, Flannery. That might be a new thing for me. And Gore Vidal once described Rand's view of the world as nearly perfect in its immorality. Ouch, Flannery. <laughs> See, it works there, too. But then you hear the stories of people who are just obsessed, like Ted Turner once paid for nearly 250 billboards that simply asked, who is John Galt? Again, if that reference doesn't make much sense to you now, it will after we dive into Rand's works. But before we do that, we should probably give a little bit of background on Rand's early years because they do help us understand where her philosophy came from. So, Mango, what do you say I give you 184 seconds to talk about Rand's early life? <laughs> I'm not sure that's going to cover it. Well, I'm setting my 184-second clock anyway, so you ready? <laughs> Go. Okay. So, in some ways, it's not hard to see how some of Rand's views developed. Rand was born Elisa Rosenbaum in 1905 in St. Petersburg, Russia. Her situation was pretty comfortable. Her dad was a pharmacist and owned his own shop. Her mother came from an important family. Ayn and her sisters even had a Belgian governess. Mm. And the girls went to an elite school. The Rosenbaums took grand vacations across the continent, which is not to say that there weren't hardships. I mean, Russia was deeply anti-Semitic and Jews were often persecuted. But the family was so well-connected, and for the most part, the girls had a sheltered upbringing. Huh. So that all changed in 1917 when her father's pharmacy was taken over by the Soviets during the Bolshevik Revolution. I mean, to watch a government take over your family's business and to simultaneously witness people preach the importance of the state over individual rights, I mean, I think that changed you forever. Well, and I think her family really struggled after that, right? Definitely. So they moved into an apartment with no electricity. Rand reportedly told friends that at one point they were even wrapping their feet in newspaper because they couldn't afford shoes. Oh, there was wow. no running water. It was a super difficult time. Well, I suppose one good thing that came about for her was the ability to attend college. So after the Russian Revolution, universities opened up to women, and Rand was one of the first female students at Petrograd State University. Pet State. That's right. <laughs> Which is where she studied history and discovered one of her biggest influences, the works of Aristotle. But she didn't stay in Petersburg for long, right? That's right. She had the opportunity to come to the U.S. when she was 20 to visit relatives. And after stops in New York City and Chicago, she eventually found her way to Hollywood. Well, and it turns out she was a huge movie lover, that she'd been seeing as many movies as she could before she even got to the U.S. And then when she was in Chicago, she had a relative who owned a movie theater, let her see films for free. So it's no big surprise that she'd want to work in the film industry, but she didn't exactly thrive there. No, she didn't. I mean, Ayn struggled in Hollywood in her early years, but I want to pause for a second to talk about her mom. Now, didn't she model some of her petty and superficial characters in her novels after her? <laughs> I mean, that, that's kind of a classic literary burn, right? Yeah, that's right. So Rand's mom was pretty hard on her. And Rand was super smart, the head of her class. She wrote provocative essays in school and knew early that she wanted to be a writer. From like age eight or something, she'd internalized the story of Catherine the Great, this woman who's overlooked and underestimated because she was homely, but clearly smart and savvy enough to grab power. Yeah, and I knew from a young age she was going to be great. I mean, she absolutely believed that. Exactly. But she wasn't athletic or popular. And Anna Rosenbaum wanted her daughter to succeed socially, so she nagged a lot. And she could be pretty mean. Like, once when Ayn was four or five, she and her sister had strewn toys all over the room, and Anna was irritated. So she told her daughters to pick a few of their favorite toys, give her the rest, and then one year later, they'd be able to trade them in. So Ayn's sister kept a few of her favorites and gave the rest to her mom. Meanwhile, Ayn, being a thinker, decided to delay her gratification. 
She thought about how happy she'd be a year from now to get her favorite toys back. <laughs> so she kept her least favorite ones. And wow. then a year later, when she asked her mom about the trade, her mom laughed and said she'd given them all to an orphanage. Oh, no. That's, that's pretty rough. <laughs> I know. So it's this memory that's a little unfair, probably, because most people have a similar gripe with their parents. But for Ayn Rand, who throughout her life found it really hard to forgive even the smallest of slights against her, she really held on to that grudge. And, of course, the story is all about the unfairness of having your possessions snatched and given away to the poor. So I'm no shrink, but you see how that shows up in her work. Yeah, it's pretty easy to see how she was against altruism when not only was her family's pharmacy being given to other people, but her stuffed animals were, too. (laughs) I mean, what's funny is that as much as she hated her mom, her mom also played a big part in her ideology. Like, she wrote things to Ayn like, every man is an architect of his own future and every person is the maker of her own happiness. And that sounded very much like Randian philosophy. I know. And so Ayn talks about everything like it just sprang from her own mind, maybe with an assist from Aristotle or Nietzsche. For example, she talks about how Russia was just a circumstance she was born into, but how she would have developed the exact same ideas in a vacuum because they're all perfectly rational and reasonable, which I find hard to believe. What, that they're all reasonable? (laughs) No, that she would have come up with the same principles if she'd been born into a different circumstance, or that she could have come up with that philosophy without her mom's influence. But the other thing that's interesting and also a little vexing is how Rand believes she never got any help along the way. Yeah, I mean, I have to say that's one thing that really bothers me about her story, too. Like, her personal mythology plays nicely into her ideology, but she got so much help along the way. I mean, her mom, as much as she nagged, did a ton for her. Mm -hmm. She ordered foreign magazines for her as a child to stoke her interest in writing, to get her into a film program. Her mother joined a communist society and shed all her elitist ties. Ayn wouldn't have been admitted had her mom not made that sacrifice. It was Ayn's mother who'd figured out a way to get her daughter out of Russia and to study film in the U.S. She sold the last of her jewelry to fund Ayn's trip to the States. Even when Ayn was struggling in Hollywood, she and Ayn's dad were saving and sending $25 a month to Ayn from Russia. Which is crazy. Just so she could eat and cover her expenses, and they were already scraping just to get by. Yeah, and in the U.S., Ayn's extended family made all sorts of incredible sacrifices for her, too. Like, they fed her and lent her quite a bit of money that she never even paid back, apparently. And they made the introduction for her to Cecil DeMille's studio in Hollywood, which is how she got the job in California in the first place. And they allowed her to type at night, even though it disrupted the whole family's sleep. Like, they did so much for her. And she was always just aloof and kind of ignored them when she became famous. Although she did send them some free copies of her books. (laughs) And she said she didn't believe in charity. (laughs) All right, speaking of books, how about we take a break for a little literature quiz? So our guest today is a very good friend and one of the most brilliant people Mangesh and I know. But more importantly, he's also a very good dude. He was one of the very first contributors to Mental Floss magazine when Mangesh and I started it back in 2001. But not long after that, he informed us he'd be leaving Mental Floss to go write a novel. We just laughed and laughed and said, we'll see you back in a few weeks. But holy crap, if he didn't write several great novels. Though it did take him a whole decade before he hit number one on the New York Times bestseller list with a publication of The Fault in Our Stars. A couple years ago, Time Magazine named him one of the 100 most influential people in the world. But even after all this success, he's still mostly a good dude. So, John, welcome to Part-Time Genius. (laughs) Thanks. It's great to be here. It's always fun to hang out with you guys. (laughs) (laughs) So we joke about you taking a decade to hit number one on the list, but the life of a struggling writer is something you've talked a good bit about. And I'm curious just to hear from you how your perspective has changed on what it means to be a successful writer in today's publishing world. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I, to be honest, like when my first book came out in 2005, it only sold like 2,000 copies in its first year, but I thought that was very successful. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, I, you know, I've always had a day job and I always figured I would have a day job. So I wasn't thinking that I was ever going to make a living from writing books and uh, the surprise development that uh, I guess I, I have been able to has been wonderful. But honestly, I still go into the office every morning uh, to work on crash course and the video stuff that we do. And I like having a day job and I wouldn't want to give it up. Wow. Yeah. And it seems like you do spend a fair amount of time encouraging other writers and talking to other writers about that, whether it's a struggle or whatever it is. Yeah, I do want to be encouraging to young writers, especially because I don't think it's like an unrealistic goal to publish a novel. Like for many years, I worked at this magazine called Booklist, which was the review journal of the American Library Association. And Booklist comes out every two weeks and every two weeks it reviews four or five hundred novels wow. or books at least. And so there's lots of people writing books and, and there's no reason um, that... Uh, that any of us can't be one of them. Obviously, you love reading. Like, what writers have you fallen in love with recently, and who should we be reading right now? Uh, the best book I've read, uh, the best young adult book I've read in, in ages is uh, The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas. I just think it's phenomenal. I think it's, I think it's going to be uh, remembered as, as a classic, the way that uh, we talk about The Outsiders or huh. Catcher in the Rye. I think it's a very special book. It just came out a couple months ago, so you still you can still get on the bandwagon early. <laughs> um, and then I really, uh, I loved uh, Colson Whitehead's most recent novel, Underground Railroad. I've been a fan of his since I uh, was working at Booklist. Uh, um, I was given one of his books many, many years ago to review and uh, have followed his career, but I think Underground Railroad is, is his best book. It's just, a, it's occasionally like the book that wins the National Book Award and the Pulitzer Prize and all the other awards turns out to just be that good. And I think Underground Railroad is, is that book. Yeah, that's the only book of his that I've read, but it was it was terrific. Yeah, John Henry Dace, his first novel is also amazing. Well, as you know, this is part of the Ayn Rand episode, and we decided for sure. our guest today, we wanted to find the only author that we know rivals Rand in popularity with teenagers. So congratulations for that one. <laughs> oh, that's a dubious honor. Um, <laughs> <laughs> to be uh, to be put in the same same category as as the fountainhead. I mean, I know I, I'm sure you guys are are trying to present a uh, fairly unbiased case here, but I have to confess that I am not unbiased when it comes to uh, to uh, Ayn Rand. I I am not a fan. We we might have done this to you on purpose. So <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I I I, I kind of guess. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, Mango, what quiz is John playing with us today? So he's playing a game called Real Celebrity Children's Book or something we just made up. I don't want to brag in advance, but I know a lot of real celebrity children's books. So I feel like I'm gonna feel like I'm gonna do okay here. Awesome. All right. So we'll read you a title and a celebrity, and all you have to do okay. is tell us if it's a real book for children or something we made up. So you don't need an okay. example, but we kinda of wanted to give you one anyway. So if we said sure. how stinky the cheese lost and then found his lost sneaker by Hank Green, you would say we made it up. That is not a real children's book. That is not a real children's book. Well done. I'm glad you know your brother well enough. So, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Here we go. Question number one. It's a Big World, Little Pig by Christy Yamaguchi. Oh, may, I mean, that's plausible, but I'm going to say it's made up. Oh, it's true, actually. Oh. <laughs> it's an, about an adorable, persistent, dreaming big pig. All right. That's a good one. You may have to pick that one up. Okay. Question number two. Yeah. Henry Alito and the Magical Empanada Machine by Justice Samuel Alito. 
There's, that's not possible. <laughs> You're correct. And you would be correct. All right. Thank God. Thank God. Okay. <laughs> Question number three. Shih Tzu Kakapupu, My Kind of Dog by Joy Behar. <laughs> I mean, I, that, <laughs> I mean, I I wish that I didn't know enough about Joy Behar to know that she's a huge dog person, but I think I think that's probably true. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it actually is a true book. All right, so what are we now? We are two for three, two, two out of three so far. All right, we got two more. Okay, Little T Learns to Share by Terrell Owens. That's one hundred percent a real book. <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> All right. Number five. Love is a five-letter word by Dan Quayle. <laughs> oh, I mean, do listeners of this podcast remember Dan Quayle? <laughs> I don't know, but it was just too uh, good not to include it. It's not true, is it? No, it's unfortunately oh, not true. Thank God. I mean, it would be, you know, it would be great if Dan Quayle had embraced his inability to spell the word potato. Right. And, like, just owned it and turned it into love as a five-letter word, which, by the way, could be a great picture book. But <laughs> I, I don't I, – I doubt that he has the self-awareness for that. But while we're on the topic of Dan Quayle, before I let you guys go, <laughs> Dan Quayle is an Indiana guy. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And he will very likely, uh, when he passes away, be buried in Crown Hill Cemetery here in Indianapolis, where I live. Uh, and Crown Hill Cemetery here in Indianapolis is home to more dead U.S. vice presidents who never became president than any other single location on Earth. Whoa, <laughs> that's a great fact. It's amazing. I'm glad we uh, set him up for that one. That's awesome. Yeah, thanks for the setup. That's yeah. actually the only piece of trivia I know. So I'm, <laughs> I, I lucked out with that one. Well done. All right. So uh, so how did John do today? He got four out of five, which is pretty amazing. And that wins him the top prize, which is our continued admiration. All right. Oh, Congratulations, sweet. John. <laughs> Congrats, John. John, thanks so much for being with us. We can't wait to see what's next. Oh, thanks, man. It's always great to talk to you guys. Looking forward to the podcast. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code, a lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash code assistant. IBM. Let's create. This Father's Day, shop at the Home Depot to find the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. He's the weed-fighting, hedge-trimming, leaf-blowing lord of the lawn. He sees the job, and he gets it done. Because your dad is a doer. So show him you appreciate everything he does with the tools he needs to power up his landscaping game. This Father's Day, give him the convenience and gas-like power of innovative and durable Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools from the Home Depot. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad does, everything he is, and everything he can be, find the perfect Father's Day gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. 
With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Now, I know we already did our guess what thing at the beginning of the episode, but <laughs> guess what else, Mango? What else, Will? So did you know Ayn Rand voted for FDR? What? <laughs> How can that be? I actually read that Ayn and her friend would take a New York Times with her to the voting booth and vote against every recommendation the paper made. Which is true, but supposedly Ayn voted for FDR because he planned to end prohibition. And what's weirder is that she didn't even drink that much. <laughs> but still, it's hard to imagine her supporting someone so focused on the government's duty to help citizens. I mean, this is the man who set up Social Security, the FCC, the SEC, FDIC, TV. <laughs> FAA. I'm pretty sure I'm just listing letters you, at this point. You definitely know a lot of letters, <laughs> but let's get back on track. So tell me about Rand's writing and her Hollywood career. Sure. So as we mentioned, Ayn wasn't an immediate hit in Hollywood, but she was hungry to make a name for herself. She starts out with this letter of introduction from her relatives to Cecil B. DeMille's studio, and she spins that into something amazing. So in her stories, she talks about the luck she had bumping into DeMille on her first few days on the set. But according to her friends, she was way more calculated than that. I mean, it's much more likely she stalked him than charmed him with her ambition. Mm -hmm. As you can guess, Ayn was big on creating your own luck. But she basically talked her way into a better role as an extra on the set of King of Kings, which is where she met her future husband, Frank. And she landed a steady job in wardrobe. Before too long, she was supplying scenes to writing departments and working on rewrites. She just kept hustling her way up. So I, I know one of these gigs was uh, supposedly reviewing movie scripts. And have you read Mallory Ortberg's Ayn Rand Reviews Children's Movies? Uh, Mallory Ortberg from uh, from The Toast? Yeah, she's she's such a genius. And she did this humor piece for The New Yorker. It's so good. I have to read you my two favorite entries. I can't wait. So this is Ayn Rand supposedly reviewing Old Yeller. So a farm animal ceases to be useful and is disposed of humanely. A valuable lesson for children. Four stars. <laughs> and this is Ayn Rand on Muppets Take Manhattan. This movie was a disappointment. The Muppets don't take Manhattan. They merely visit it. No stars. <laughs> uh, that's pretty rough. I know. But I cut you off. You were talking about Rand's Hollywood hustle. Yeah, she definitely struggled for a while. And then about six years after she gets to Hollywood, she does start having some success. I mean, she sells a screenplay. Which is astounding considering the fact that she doesn't even speak English fluently yet. I know. I mean, her language is still rough around the edges, but she's a workhorse and she's studying the craft. And then she writes a play called The Night of January 16th. It's a courtroom drama where the audience gets pulled into the jury. It has a similar plot to another play of the time, but it has a clever gimmick. Depending on how the audience votes, the play's ending changes. Oh, kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure or uh, yeah. the movie Clue, which originally had four endings. Oh, yeah, Clue. So I, actually, <laughs> by the way, did you know that movie totally bombed at the box office because <laughs> theaters only showed one of the three endings each time? Oh, really? It was a total crapshoot which ending you'd see. And so people were just confused why they saw different versions of the movie. 
<laughs> so this concept probably worked much better on VHS. I guess so. I guess so. But but where were we? So so Ayn is starting to play with philosophy. She saw the play's endings as a touring litmus test for how a jury thinks. But the more amazing thing about the night of January 16th is that it shed a ton of royalties. Ayn was really smart about it. The play only had one setting, so it was easy for summer stock companies to put it on. And even though Ayn soured quickly on FDR and completely hated everything he stood for, (laughs) his Works Progress Administration brought the play to hundreds of local theaters around the country and paid for her performances. According to author Anna Conover Heller, Ein was pocketing up to $1,200 a week in the Depression era Whoa. when American incomes were usually around $1,500 a year. And between that and the screenplay she sold, that gave her space to write. Well, definitely. Her first novel, We the Living, was published in 1936, a year after the night of hits Broadway. This is also the novel that Rand later acknowledged was as close to autobiographical as anything she would write. Sure, it's pretty common for writers' first books to be pretty biographical. And Eins didn't follow the details of her younger years exactly, but there were definitely similarities. This was really Rand's first big public argument against communism. So instead of a pharmacy, the protagonists own a textile factory that gets taken away. It's a familiar theme, the struggle of the individual against the state. Right. So this is the theme she keeps building on in The Fountainhead. Guess how old she was when The Fountainhead was published, Will? All right, so this was 1943, so she was 38. Wait, are you thinking uh, <laughs> thinking what I'm thinking? Yep, we'll both be 38 after your birthday next month, so we should write a Fountainhead, Fountainhead sequel. sequel. Okay. <laughs> I can't believe you were thinking the exact same thing I was thinking. Yeah, but instead of uh, Fountainhead Part 2, I think we should call it The The Mountainhead. All right. Yeah, this is sounding worse by the minute, I have to be honest. (laughs) So Rand always said that uh, in The Fountainhead, her goal was to show the vision of the ideal man. And she felt she accomplished this with the novel's main character, Howard Rourke. Exactly. Rourke's an architect who's a fierce individualist and refuses to sell out to compromise his vision. So in the novel, we see all the struggles Rourke faces because he's unwilling to simply conform and fall in line with what the establishment thinks architecture should be. You see others in the novel taking advantage of his talents, but as Rand's ideal man, he shuns what she dubs collectivism and stands firm against the second-handers, the societal parasites who live off of others' talents. Yeah, Ayn Rand definitely saw the world in black and white, but it's not surprising that the theme resonated with so many people. And of course, it launched Rand into another level of popularity and success. Yeah, one thing that's funny about The Fountainhead is that Ayn kept a list of the 12 publishers that rejected that book. Wow. It's in her archives and a big part of her personal narrative. But what I didn't realize until reading uh, Heller's book was that of the 12, She turned down the advance from one for being too low. (laughs) Then she had a contract with one of them and missed her big deadline, so they dropped her. And for another three or four of them, she only submitted a super rough outline instead of full chapters. So they didn't really understand the book. Like, (laughs) if you're going to hold a grudge for being rejected, all of those details matter. Well, they didn't to Rand. (laughs) Even after it was written, publishers weren't exactly sure what to do with The Fountainhead, but the book grew from word of mouth, and it quickly brought Rand the financial security she needed to be able to think about other projects. So whether that was screenplays or nonfiction or just being a more vocal activist for the anti-communist and free market movements. So why do you think she decided Rourke should be an architect? Well, I think it's because Ayn viewed architecture as being this perfect blend of art, business, and science, and decided that her ideal man should look like this for the book. Well, that makes sense, and it's interesting that her philosophy is pro-art, because I don't always think about Rand's fans thinking that way. But back to the Fountainhead, it's curious how many architects would go around claiming Rourke was patterned on them, 
like Richard Neutra, Raphael Soriano, there are at least four or five prominent people who just assumed it was them. Well, it's especially funny because while we know Ayn Rand considered Frank Lloyd Wright the true Rourke, Mm -hmm. when she actually met Wright, she was turned off by the fact that he surrounded himself with yes-men who worshipped his work, which, (laughs) you know, is exactly what Ayn Rand did. I mean, her groupies had to take loyalty tests and survive show trials in her living room just to keep hanging with her. Loyalty tests? That's amazing. Mm -hmm. But uh, wasn't Frank Lloyd Wright also kind of a socialist? Well, yeah, she kind of ignored that, too, so... (laughs) So we talked about individualism and collectivism, but we haven't yet talked about the ism Rand is best known for, and that's objectivism. And that's because we haven't really talked about the mother of all Ayn Rand books, Atlas Shrugged, which, by the way, my dad used to pronounce shrugged, like rugged. <laughs> like, I don't know if it's like a personal joke, but I realized in college I was the only person in the world that was pronouncing the book that way, and it makes no sense because obviously it's shrugged. Like, <laughs> Well, don't get me started on how you pronounce calcium. Calcium. That's so weird. (laughs) But I think you were talking about how the idea for Atlas Shrugged emerged. Right. So as popular as The Fountainhead was, Ayn was upset that readers and reviewers weren't grasping her philosophy. And it's true that, like, each character in that book has one specific philosophy and acts in that manner. And she assumed it was all super clear to the reader. But one of her friends told her, why don't you just write a book to set people straight? And as Ayn started balking, saying she wasn't an altruist and it wasn't her responsibility to clarify philosophy for this dumb audience, like, (laughs) at the end of that conversation, she joked, maybe I'll just go on strike. And that's where the idea for Atlas came from, the question of what would happen if all the world's most talented people went on strike at the same time. Well, but again, that project wasn't exactly a quick turnaround. I mean, she published Atlas a decade and a half after The Fountainhead in 1957, Also, did you know she refused to be edited? Like, she famously told Bennett Cerf of Random House, would you cut the Bible? (laughs) I think Bennett Cerf could have shaved a few paragraphs off the Bible and still (laughs) had it make sense. So uh, she demanded no one touch her perfect text. Would you cut the Bible? I think Bennett Cerf could have shaved a few paragraphs off the Bible and still had it make sense. So, (laughs) um, Also, when she demanded no one touch her perfect text, Surf asked her to reduce her royalties by eight cents a book to pay for all that extra paper, which she actually did. No way. I mean, she was really committed to writing the Bible of objectivism. And for someone who preached selfishness, she didn't mind taking a pay cut to get her work out. Anyway, Atlas Shrugged is where we meet the character John Galt with the opening line, who is John Galt? Uh, this book sets up this mystery where, and I'm sorry if we're spoiling this for you listeners, but honestly, you've had like 60 years to read this thing. <laughs> but it sets up this mystery where John Galt has been leading a strike of all those Rand sees as the true contributors in society, scientists, artists, inventors, and so on. And in a dystopian U.S., the phrase, who is John Galt, has become this meaningless phrase of exasperation that's used widely. I really can't believe you just spoiled John Galt, so <laughs> maybe we should spoil some other classics while we're at it so you can get all our hate mail at the same time. So I'm, I'm sorry to tell you, listeners, the Grinch doesn't just steal Christmas. He ends up giving it back. And <laughs> also Aslan from The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe, well, he's Jesus. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that sound we heard was 40 people simultaneously slamming their uh, Dr. Seuss books down in disgust. Yep. But uh, <laughs> Atlas Shrugged's main intention is to show how without the contributions of our most talented individuals, society and the economy would collapse. Yeah, the idea of the strike was something Rand talked about frequently even outside of Atlas Shrugged. Well, I feel like half of what she talked about after writing Atlas Shrugged was Atlas Shrugged. Right. Like, at dinner parties, her band of groupies would debate who would be the ideal cast for an Atlas movie. And it's kind of the way you might talk about baseball history and what your fantasy baseball lineup would be. 
Well, the funny thing about John Galt is that he's almost like those Shep Ferry, Andre the Giant stickers or that Kilroy was here graffiti. Mm -hmm. Once it gets pointed out to you, you start noticing it everywhere. It's the same with those Who is John Galt signs. You see them at protests and Tea Party events, and once you notice, you can't stop seeing them. So anyway, despite Ayn's previous comment about not wanting to be altruistic and have to explain her philosophies, after Atlas Shrugged, that's sort of what she did. She began writing more and more nonfiction and focusing on communicating her philosophy on how we should all exist in society. As she saw it, the only real goal of government was to protect individual rights. There was no moral obligation to look after other people's needs. Sure, and on the flip side, she also believed that no one was responsible for your needs. Of course, it's important to keep in mind that Atlas Shrugged was written in a time when socialism was growing. I mean, the Cold War was strong and lots of places were also veering towards socialist democracies. And Rand was warning about a world where most countries were on the verge of collapse because of government overreach. Well, knowing that it's not hard to see why certain conservatives and libertarians have jumped on the Ayn Rand train. But she hated libertarians. (laughs) Like she once called libertarians publicity seekers who rush into politics prematurely because they allegedly want to educate people through a political campaign, which can't be done. And she also accused them of plagiarizing her ideas, saying it's a bad sign for an allegedly pro-capitalist party to start stealing ideas. She really used the word allegedly a lot. She loved allegedly. (laughs) So Ayn Rand didn't really hold back her feelings, it's clear. And she was ridiculously sure of her ideas. In fact, this is part of what made her such a controversial person. Like, she made a lot of divisive statements. Yeah, like what? Do you want to give a few examples? Yeah, in her address to the graduating class at West Point in the 70s, she said of Native Americans, quote, They had no right to a country merely because they were born here and then acted like savages. The white man did not conquer this country. Will, you gave a commencement address last year. Did you use a similar quote? You know, I decided to leave that one out. (laughs) Now, she later defended her point on that by basically saying whenever a superior technology meets an inferior one, that society has the right to prevail. She was insistent that it wasn't a racist argument. Yeah, just a problematic one. I'd say. Well, and Rand also hated the feminist label. She even referred to herself as a male chauvinist. I mean, that's not hard to figure out from her books. And in addition, there's no other way to put this, but a lot of her sex scenes are kind of rapey. Yeah. Like, it's often a man throwing a woman down who doesn't want to have sex but actually does. And she ended up having to write letters to her male fans clarifying that she was not suggesting rape as a practical romantic strategy and that the scenes she was writing about were actually consensual. And maybe that's why she isn't read on more college campuses. Mm -hmm. And also plenty of people have taken issue with her comments about women and the thinking that a woman shouldn't aspire to be president, even though she claimed not to believe that women were any less intelligent or capable. Yeah, but in many ways, the things that have made conservatives distance themselves from her are just the fact that she was stridently pro-choice. Like, she borrowed money from an abortion pretty early in her marriage, and she was also a proud atheist. There's a funny thread in her biography where housekeeper Eloise is constantly trying to convert her, and even on her deathbed, she's letting Eloise know there is no God. (laughs) You'd think it would be very difficult for a social conservative to get behind Rand because she was not vague in her positions on these things. But I have to say, this is starting to feel a little heavy, so Mm -hmm. why don't we cut the tension with a little quiz? Let's do it. All right, Mango, so who do we have on the line today? We've got two architects on the line. We've got Marshall from Birmingham, Alabama, and Rob's calling in from New York City. All right, so let's meet each of them. First, we have Marshall, who started a company called Design Initiative in Birmingham. Marshall, welcome to Part-Time Genius. 
Glad to be here. Excited about the opportunity. All right. So I know that we're here to talk about uh, you guys as architects, but I did notice in some of the notes that you sent us that you joined the Marines at the age of 17 after seeing the movie Aliens. Is this true? Yeah, that's right. Uh, I'm sure. Well, I don't know either of you saw this movie, but there were these uh, colonial Marines that had these really wicked guns that made this awesome sound. And I saw the movie and thought, that's what I want to do. Uh, in addition to that, I was kind of tired of being told what to do by my father. So I thought, what better way to kind of express my independence than to join the Marine Corps? Then, then to go be told what to do by the Marines, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I served for about four years, and uh, I got a little tired of being told what to do. And so uh, the first thing I decided to do once I got out was get married. I married a strong-willed Latina woman. Well done. All right. So, Rob, tell us how you were inspired by the movie Aliens. Uh, I don't think I've ever seen it. (laughs) (laughs) What? Excellent. (laughs) So, Rob is currently working at the Guggenheim. I'm actually curious, what what would you say is the best part of working at the Guggenheim, Rob? Uh, I think the biggest perk is you can go in there on a Thursday when nobody else is in the entire museum and, and get a pretty impressive space to yourself. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I'm jealous of that. So... All right, well, it is time to play one of our really, really dumb games. And so, Mango, what game are we playing today? We're playing a game called the Stage Name Game. All right, that's right, because Ayn Rand's actual name was Alyssa Rosenbaum. We thought we'd play a game involving some celebrity original names. So, for example, if we said Desiderio Albert Arnez y de Acha III was married and starred in a sitcom with Lucille Ball, you would say Desi Arnez. Got it? And because you're playing against each other and we don't have buzzers, we're going to give you each an animal sound to buzz in with. Okay, that's right. All right, Rob, uh, do you want to meow for us? I, I can do that, I guess. Okay. <laughs> and Marshall, uh, why don't you be our dog? So how about a woof woof from you uh, for your answers? That sound good? Perfect, because, you know, Marines are uh, devil dogs, so I've got a really good bark. Yes, that's what we, we had that in mind when we, we decided to do this. So. <laughs> All right, so we've got five questions here. You want to jump in, you will name the celebrity that we are giving a hint about. So, question number one. Stevelyn Judkins is a singer known for several hit songs, including Signed, Sealed, Delivered, and I Just Called to Say I Love You. What's his real name? Meow. All right, Rob, I heard a meow. Stevie Wonder. Stevie Wonder. Good job. Okay. Question number two. Ginger Rogers' dancing partner, Frederick Austerlitz, took another name. What was it? Meow. Wow. Rob's ready to meow. I think he's just excited to meow. Okay. I think I heard you say it. Can you say it again there, Rob? Fred Astaire. Okay. Good job. Two to nothing. Here we go. Question number three. This pop singer with hits I Kissed a Girl and Roar changed her name from Kate Hudson. Ooh-hoo. Let me read the question, then I'll let you answer there, Marshall. Changed her name from Kate Hudson because she didn't want to be confused with actress Kate Hudson. Marshall, who was it? Katy Perry. All right, two to one. Should have known you would know your uh, Katy Perry history as a former Marine. So, okay. Question number four. Natalie Hirschlag snagged starring roles in Garden State, V for Vendetta, and in Star Wars, oof, oof. wow, Star Wars Phantom Menace. Marshall, what is her real name? Natalie Portman. Okay, two to two. This is the last one. Wow, this is a close one. Okay, last one. This is a good one. Here we go. 
This death row rapper, famous for his hit song about gin and juice, was born Cortazar Calvin Brodus Jr. All right. Recently, he co-hosted a TV show on VH1 with Martha Stewart. This was a huge comeback if he gets this right. Who was it, Marshall? Snoop Dogg. Oh, wow. Nicely done. So three to two. Good job, guys. So what has Marshall won today, Mango? As always, first place wins a handwritten note from us to your mom or your boss singing your praises. And this week, that goes to Marshall. And because we don't want Rob in second place to feel bad, we'll be mailing you a pterodactyl tote bag, the cheapest tote bag we could find online with a pterodactyl on it. Thank you both for playing. Thanks, guys, for being on uh, Part-Time Genius. This was a lot of fun. (laughs) Thanks, y'all. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com consulting. IBM. Let's create. This Father's Day, shop at the Home Depot to find the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. He's the weed-fighting, hedge-trimming, leaf-blowing lord of the lawn. He sees the job, and he gets it done. Because your dad is a doer. So show him you appreciate everything he does with the tools he needs to power up his landscaping game. This Father's Day, give him the convenience and gas-like power of innovative and durable Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools from the Home Depot. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad does, everything he is, and everything he can be, find the perfect Father's Day gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. talked about the popularity of Ayn Rand's novels and her later nonfiction writing, but what would you say of her lasting impact? Well, there's no question she's made millions of people think. And over the past couple of decades, after a big economic downturn and the emergence of the Tea Party and other conservative movements, she certainly enjoyed a resurgence. But I wonder how many politicians will continue to claim Rand as a major influence. As more and more things have come out about her, like her open marriage, the fact that she advocated for abortions, her absolute detest of religion. I mean, she hated Reagan because he sold her theories to the masses by tethering them to religion. It just gets hard to embrace her publicly. Yeah, it's interesting to think about. I mean, you used to hear politicians like Paul Ryan and Mark Sanford talking about being heavily inspired by Rand. 
I think Ryan even said he made her books required reading for all of his interns mm-hmm. and that he read the books a few times a year. But what it feels like we're seeing now is politicians acknowledging that Rand simply got them thinking about the world and how to live in it, you know, more in their teenage years. In fact, some of her early editors say as much. She had one quite liberal editor who said he loved her work and was happy to publish it because it was great young adult fiction. It makes young, disenfranchised teens embrace their independent qualities and reframes them as heroes. And of course, these are uh, oversimplified ideas that people could overcome almost any adversity just through hard work and intelligence, and that everyone is either sorted into people who produce or people who leech. Journalist Nora Ephron wrote about her experience with Rand and specifically her reading of The Fountainhead and said she loved the book as an 18-year-old, but that she really missed the point. And that, quote, it's a better read when one is young enough to miss the point. Otherwise, (laughs) one cannot help but thinking it's a very silly book. So it does feel like now you hear more politicians acknowledging that they had a Rand phase. And both Paul Ryan and Mark Sanford have said in more recent years that they reject her overall philosophy for its lack of compassion. And in a day when it's, like, much easier to know the full story of someone's writings, it's harder for someone to quote one part of Rand's philosophy without someone else quickly pointing out, well, did you know she said this terrible thing or that terrible thing? I mean, it's all out there on the Internet, right? Yeah, the World Wide Web. I hear it's going to be big. (laughs) It is. And I don't think either of us are suggesting that Ayn Rand won't continue to find an audience. There are definitely several businesses that have been named after Rand. And... You know, as we saw as we were doing our research for the episode on tax havens, there are a lot of yachts and even construction companies in the Caymans named for her. So while politicians and other public figures may not be quite as quick to get behind Ayn Rand, there is one thing we should all be able to get behind. What's that? The fact that no show could be complete without the part-time genius fact off. <laughs> Let's do it. So uh, I'm going to start. Did you know Ayn Rand was a massive Charlie's Angel fan? No. Yeah, she never missed an episode. And she was actually also obsessed with Agatha Christie books, though she only liked Hercule Poirot and not Miss Marple, mainly because she wasn't a feminist. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, Ayn Rand was so afraid of being kidnapped that she refused to take planes. She only traveled by trains. And sometimes the people who sponsored her speeches would have a personal rail car added to a train to transport her. (laughs) I know I always ask for an extra rail car anytime I give a speech. So she was also paranoid about losing her manuscripts. And when Atlas Shrugged was being written, she would often put the text in a briefcase, then handcuff it to her husband when they went out to eat. All right. Well, every year, 400,000 copies of Rand's novels are given free to advanced placement high school programs. They're paid for by the Ayn Rand Institute, whose director, Yaron Brook, said the mission was to keep Rand alive. That's a lot of copies. That is. So for all our talk of hating charity, she actually did some nice things for people. Like, she paid for Frank's niece to go to college, and one time she sent stamps to kids of a family she'd met because she knew the kids were stamp collectors. And of course, her rationale for all of that was that charity shouldn't be a zero-sum game. (laughs) She only helped people if she thought she was getting something for that money. It's almost like she had to rationalize, like, giving because it was against everything she wrote about. Yeah, wow. Well, the only instance I could find of Ayn Rand admitting she had made a mistake was with one of her followers she was having an affair with. So Ayn sat down with her husband, the guy's wife, the guy, and she told them it was selfish of them and immoral of them (laughs) not to let Ayn and the guy have an affair. Her terms were that the affair would take place a few days a week for maybe two years. And the mistake she admitted was that she should have presented it as a longer term. That's ridiculous. So did you know that Alan Greenspan was one of her groupies? Mm -hmm. 
So he took her to meet President Ford in Washington when he was sworn into a new position. Also, Greenspan was constantly telling her she should put her money in the stock market, but she refused. She just kept it in a bank account. So at the end of her day, she didn't have nearly as much money as she could have, which is odd for a capitalist. So maybe that's why she took Social Security at the end of her life? What? Ayn Rand was on Social Security? Yeah, I mean, she was philosophically against it, but her lawyer basically told her she needed the money for her illnesses, and Ayn told her to make decisions, but not to tell her about them. Oh, that's so disappointing. But uh, it is a great fact, so I'm going to cede this round to you. Thank you. Um, and before we finally sign off, we've got to announce our addition to the Hall of Genius. Um, you know, I was so influenced by Ayn Rand's philosophy, and absolute selfishness this week that I thought we should give the award to ourselves. <laughs> so dumb. I think it's just you being lazy. Yeah, definitely. I'm equal parts producer and moocher now. So uh, also, I'm officially a genius. Good job. Well, that sounds pretty dubious, but that's <laughs> it for this week's Part-Time Genius. Thanks so much for listening. again for listening to Part-Time Genius. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And because we're a brand new show, if you're feeling extra generous, we'd love it if you give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Part-Time Genius is produced by some of our favorite geniuses. It's edited by Tristan McNeil, theme song and audio mixing by Noel Brown. Our executive producer is Jerry Rowland. Our research team is Gabe Luzier, Lucas Adams, Autumn Whitefield-Madrano, Austin Thompson, and Meg Robbins. Jason Hoke is our chief cheerleader. has done it again. This month only, get ready for an offer you can't resist. Buy a natural diamond engagement ring of one carat plus and receive a free natural one carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. That's right, a stunning diamond tennis bracelet at no extra cost. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. So hurry into Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet will not last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com. You wouldn't expect to hear that we're America's third best city for beer like this one. Or home to vibes like this. And this. It might surprise you that we're top ten for immersive art that's like. Whoa. And. Hmm. Not to mention, we have one of the top zoos in the country. So can a city with the country's best pro soccer team, ranking as a top culinary destination in the world, be in your own backyard? Yes, Columbus. Plan your summer at experiencecolumbus.com slash summer. Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.